admitting that you do not see is the way of being able to see something. First admitting that you can't see is sometimes the very avenue that it takes for you to begin seeing. First, a trivial example. Have you ever been to the mall? This is back when malls had people in them, not just stores. And, uh, and, and so this is the 1990s. We'd hang out at the mall with our friends. Our parents would drop us off. And there was always a couple of art stores in there. And I gravitated to those. And there were these blurry pictures. Uh, and all it was was a big blur. And if you were to stare at it, supposedly there would be a 3D picture that would come through. And so you're standing there with all your buddies. And they'd say, hey, Owens, do you see it? And you have one or two choices, lie and say, yeah, I can see it, or tell the truth and maybe get help. Now, here was the help they offered me. If you look at it cross-eyed, right, you know, then the picture, and so you're all sitting there trying to do this cross-eyed thing. And sure enough, after many times of looking at these things cross-eyed, I should have brought a picture for you, uh, for you to see. You'll Google them later. Uh, but you begin to see the image. All right. That, that, that's an easy one. That's kind of fun. Let me move to a more personal one. I'm embarrassed to say how many times this has happened, but you know, you'll know this is the case for you as well. I can't tell you how many times that Laura has come to me and has tried to explain to me the way things are between me and one of the children. And I don't see it. And I am absolutely convinced that this is not true. But I've been married long enough to know that I'm not supposed to say that. But she has also been married long enough to me that she already knows what I'm thinking. Right? And so she knows. And so what does she do? She keeps telling me the truth, telling me the truth, telling me the truth. And I have a choice to either deny that there is something between me and one of the children that just can't possibly be true, or I can admit that I don't see and maybe begin to actually start seeing things that are really, that are really there. And how many times has Laura been right? <laughs> the funny, the personal, now the philosophical question for all the ages, what is the relationship between sin and suffering? What is the relationship between sin and suffering? Sin and suffering are deep and confusing topics. We meet the disciples in John 9, verse 2, and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, because he was born blind? And Jesus gives a very succinct answer in verse 3 of how God uses dark days even for the good of Christians. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. We have all questioned at different times, why would God allow such circumstances? And Jesus' answer is that the work of God might be displayed through it. What a comfort that could have been to his parents if his parents would have known verse 3. These are real people with real trials. Can you just put yourself in his parents' shoes for a moment? Think of what they would have experienced, the anxieties that they would have had. They would have wondered, what would he become? Because he could not take over his father's profession. They would have wondered, as we age and fail, who will take care of him? 
for surely no woman is going to marry him. If you are here and you face challenges with your children, educational problems, social problems, physical disabilities, I pray that you'll find some encouragement here. Jesus said this happened so that the works of God might be displayed. God does move in a mysterious way, doesn't he? We need to be careful not to draw a line and total things up without God in the equation. There can be implications for your trials that have never crossed your mind. I love how Matthew Henry put it. Matthew Henry observed, the sentences in the book of Providence are often long, and you must read a great way before you apprehend the sense of them. The sentences in the book of Providence are often long, and you've got to read a long way before you see how it all adds up. The most monstrous of circumstances, notice, meekly obey the command of God. From difficult marriages to unbelieving parents to challenges, right, uh, in our health, the most challenging of circumstances we face are within the sovereign purposes of God for every Christian. So what was the specific work that God wanted to accomplish, that God wanted to display? Well, Jesus has declared in John 8, 12, we're still in the same section. John 8, 12, Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will walk in light and will have life. That's what he's declared. And now, a whole chapter later, he is going to finally demonstrate. He's going to vindicate that he is the light of the world because he can give sight to a man who's been born blind. He would now demonstrate it in chapter 9 that he is the light of the world to a man born blind on a man who walked in darkness every day, on a man who seemed to be among the most unfortunate of people. Now a man who has been blind from birth is going to be numbered among the most blessed because he is going to be one of the few, one of the first to, with his actual eyes, look upon Jesus and see him as the Son of Man, God incarnate, and to fall down and worship. A homeless man that you might walk past every day, a homeless man that might fly a kite out front of Home Depot, we don't know most of them, we don't know their names, but this guy is one of the most blessed and he has turned and has challenged our hearts. We know his story because with his eyes he sees Jesus. This blind beggar is one of the first that we read who worshipped Jesus. Sometimes knowing that you can't see is the first step in actually seeing something. Throughout this chapter, this blind man begins to see more and more and more. And those that have sight, they seem to see less and less. In other words, this blind man moves from ignorance about Jesus to identifying Jesus as the Son of Man and being invited into worshiping him. While the people that are sighted 
see less and less, and they move from all of these advantages they have as the religious leaders who know the scriptures, and by the end of it, they don't receive an invitation to worship Jesus. They receive an indictment, thinking that they see they are actually blind. Faith family, there is a big difference between being ignorant of Jesus and ignoring Jesus. There is a big difference between being ignorant of Jesus and choosing to ignore him. Let's look at that difference between ignorance and ignoring. We're going to track this story through twice. The first time we're going to go through it, we're going to go through it through the shoes of the man born blind, and we're going to see how he was once ignorant, and he moves to identifying Jesus and offering him what he is due, worship. Then we'll backtrack and we'll go through it through the eyes of the religious leaders and see how they had all of these advantages, yet they willfully close their eyes, close their hearts, and they reject the facts that are right in front of them, ignoring who Jesus is and what he has come to do, even though he gives them all of this evidence. First, those, this man born blind, we meet him. He is completely ignorant of Jesus. Remember, he has never seen Jesus before. He's never seen anyone before. Jesus would be a stranger to him. All he hears is Jesus' voice, and Jesus tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went, and he washed, and he came back seeing. For some strange reason, he obeys Jesus, even though Jesus is a stranger. But I guess after you've already allowed somebody to put mud in your eyes after working it with their own saliva, hearing a command to go and wash would be one that you would readily obey. Yeah, <laughs> got it, <laughs> gone. Happy to do that. All kidding aside, the details of how Jesus brings this man to sight are supposed to kind of just put that little pebble in your mind to make you go, hmm, this sounds a lot like God creating in Genesis 2. You know, there, there's a Sabbath, and God, when he creates man, doesn't do it like the rest of creation where he just says it, and bang, bang, boom, it all happens. No, when he creates man, there's counsel. And Jesus here interacts with this guy personally. God himself stoops down to work from the dust of the ground to create Adam. And here, Jesus is stooping down to work with the mud to recreate sight. He goes to the pool of Siloam. Jesus does not follow Jesus is absent, hold on to that thought for later, and the man comes home seeing. The neighbors don't recognize him. Look at verses 8 and 9. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it's he. Others said, No, but it's like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. The change is so radical that it even affected his appearance when people looked at him. For the first time, his eyes looked back. Changed. They couldn't even recognize him. So when they ask him what happens, he says, a man named Jesus healed me. I don't know much about him. I don't know where he's from. I don't know where he's at right now. But this is his name, and this is what he has done. All of this to show us that Jesus Christ has overcome his darkness. Jesus Christ, as the light of the world, has the power to give sight. And here's the principle for us, faith family. Faith family, light does not need darkness's permission to work. Light does not have to go and, and get permission to do his work. Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus takes the authority and sovereignly, as the light of the world, gives this man light and life. And that's why after two chapters 
of resistance. And I think like what, four sermons about unbelief. You might be tired of hearing about unbelief. After four sermons going, can anybody believe? We get chapter nine. Finally, there's hope. Why is there hope? Why is there hope for even today? Because the light of the world does not need permission to work. All he has to say is, let there be light. And this man is given sight. And that is why even if you come here today, dragged here by your parents, un, you know, completely resistant to anything, you're not going to pay attention. You know what? I don't think you're going to withstand God and his call. If he wants to say, let there be light, he will give you sight to see him in his glory and to believe. And there is hope today. Now, that's too much for the neighbors to take in. So they decide to get a second opinion. They get the professionals. Look at verses 13 through 14. They bring to the man, or they bring the man to the Pharisees who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. If this was a movie, you would begin to kind of hear the ominous tones. Now it was a Sabbath day. Dun dun dun. You know, I mean, you just, uh-oh, something bad is gonna happen. Because back then, these religious leaders, this religious police had developed all of these laws to keep it so that they had power. And Christ is actually breaking rules. Yes, Christ is a rule breaker, as we have often heard lately. And so here he is breaking rules of the Sabbath because he's healing somebody on the Sabbath. He is taking mud and he is kneading it. And all of that would be work. And so Jesus is breaking the rules that the religious establishment you know, put in place to exercise power. Let's pick it back up now in verse 15. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I wash and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Pharisees are divided some think that he can't possibly be from God because he's breaking the Sabbath rules. But other people are saying, well, who else could this be? I mean, who has ever done a miracle like this? And so you can kind of just see these spiritual know-it-alls throwing their hands up in the air and saying, I don't know. Let's just go and ask him. Hey, he healed you. What do you have to say about it? And this man born blind says he's a prophet. Now, even though this man born blind has physical sight given to him all at once, we see that his spiritual sight kind of comes gradually. He begins to see more and more. He's making progress. Remember, he first identifies Jesus as the man Jesus healed me. Now he's moved to he's a prophet. He's ramping things up. He's realizing there's something unique. It's still a bit blurry to him, but he's starting to see. By verse 27, now he includes himself as one of Jesus' disciples. Look at 27. He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also, right, that implies him, do you also want to become his disciples? Well, the Pharisees are offended. More on that later. But he draws conclusions about who Jesus is that they should have drawn Look at 31 through 33. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The blind man gets it. He understands 
more progress. He's recognizing that Jesus is sent from God. Faith him, there's a big difference between being ignorant about Jesus and choosing to willfully ignore who Jesus is. Well, Jesus finds this man, and he asks him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And here is ignorance in verse 36. He answered him, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He doesn't know who he is, but it's not because he doesn't want to know. He wants to know in order to believe. And so Jesus now invites him to an explicit faith. Look at 37. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believed, and he worshiped him. Big difference between being ignorant of Jesus and choosing to ignore who Jesus is. And the difference is in God, not in these men. Notice that Jesus says in 39, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Jesus has come so that those that are blind, those that know they are blind, those that are willing to admit that they don't see, may actually have sight. And so faith family, sometimes admitting that you can't see is the first step in actually seeing something. But the same light that brings this man life is the same light that is too bright for the Pharisees, and it blinds them, and they willfully turn their head, close their eyes, close their hearts, and ignore who Jesus is. Let's move to our second uh, run-through of this chapter. We're going to see how they move from being able to see to being blind, from having all the advantages, from having every reason to believe, to willfully closing their eyes and hearts and ignoring Jesus. Pharisees aren't ignorant of Jesus. The Pharisees are ignoring who Jesus is. Well, let's pick it up here in verses 15 through 16. We'll go back in your Bible, chapter 9, 15 through 16. The neighbors bring the blind man to the Pharisees for that second opinion. And these Pharisees seem to just ignore the really big point. There is a man born blind who can see. They, and they miss that to care more about what day this happened on. This is a classic case of majoring in the minors, right? Majoring in missing the point. Look at 15 and 16. So the Pharisees asked him again, how had he received his sight? And he said, and he put mud on my eyes, I wash and I see. But some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. You know, this is still the case today that people judge by religious backgrounds rather than the truth. People today judge by religious backgrounds rather than the truth. Just a couple weeks ago, I went on a hike with Josh Newhook. We should call it a sprint. Okay, but we went up Mount Moriah. Try to keep up with Josh Newhook is a full-out sprint. And, uh, and as we were going up, uh, we were having a conversation about him and his a Bible study that he leads at Hillsdale College. He's a senior. He leads a Bible study there. It's a student-led Bible study. It's not a faculty thing. And so he was going around campus inviting different men to attend his Bible study. And he says, you know what I often hear is, no thanks, I'm a Roman Catholic. Faith family, what difference does that make? It's like saying, no thanks, I'm an economics major. You know, but people judge what Josh Newhook is about, not according to the truth, 
but according to their religious background. It's because, well, is that a Baptist Bible study? Is that an E-Free Church Bible study? I, I don't know, but oftentimes people just dismiss it because it doesn't fit what their religious background already is. And people make their judgments and they get it wrong. And so here, they are concerned about Jesus breaking the Sabbath. And they would rather judge if this man was really blind, rather than judging, is this their long-awaited Messiah that they've been waiting for? Because there's division, they do what the only logical thing to do is when you're confused. Go ask mom and dad, right? They're going to settle this. So verses 18 and 19, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? If you are here and you are skeptical about the Bible and its integrity and about the possibilities of miracles, we're glad you're here. You're always welcome here. You can question anything you want. This is a great Sunday for you to be here in God's providence because guess what? These people do research. They don't just take the guy's word for it, right? Hey, I'm the guy that was born blind. Sure, you can be part of the plot. What do they do? They go back and they investigate to see if his parents really do have this son who once was blind and now sees. It's a great word for you to consider. They're not more gullible back then as if people back then would just believe in fairy tales and resurrections. No, they're just like you. They want to know that what they're believing is true, and so they investigate. So his parents say in verses 20 and 21, We know that this is our son, and we know that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Gee, thanks, Mom and Dad. Love you, too. You know, I mean, just throwing the kid right underneath the bus, right? We find out why the parents were unwilling to testify in verses 22 and 23. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. This still happens today as well. You're considering the truth claims of Jesus. You're considering becoming a Christian. But you're worried that you might be excluded from your family. You're worried you might be rejected by friends. It might risk you an employment opportunity. Fear is really a part of it. Because censorship is in. Canceling is in. Right? The people then, the people today, would rather censor the truth than to consider the truth. That's tactic number one. How do we ignore truth? We just cancel it. We censor it. Censorship is the activity of people who build their authority off of authority and power. Faith family, do not be intimidated by the cancel culture or censorship. Censorship is the activity of people who are worried about the truth. But if you build your life on truth, right, you don't have to censor anyone's opinion because you welcome opinions. If someone was to give you an opinion of why you're doing something that's wrong, you could say, thank you so much for showing me that. I've made up my mind to always build my life on truth. Therefore, you showing me that I was wrong, now I can change. I can build my life on this. Thank you so much. But if you build your life on authority, on power, 
on tradition, on background, on anything other than truth, you can't afford people to say anything. you got to stop them from saying things. That's why Aaron is burdened about Islamic countries, closed countries that don't want the truth of the gospel shared. Why? They would lose power. They'd lose control. It's a sign of great weakness when people want to censor. But because we stand on truth as Christians, we don't censor anyone. We welcome your opinions. It might take years to show us why we were wrong, but we'll come to that conclusion. But we never want to be a people that censor because being someone who cancels or censor is really just a sign of being insecure about the truth. We want to build our life on the truth. But these religious leaders say, oh, if anybody says that this guy is the Christ, he's kicked out. They don't actually want to consider, is he the Christ? Let's just get to the truth. Let's build our life on that. No, 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 no. Let's just, nope, nobody can say that. That will ruin our power base. Well, the Jews and religious leaders are no longer able to see who Jesus is. They're no closer to finding out who he is, but we certainly are more close to finding out who they are. They are men who have their minds already made up. Look at verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man in who had been born blind, and they said to him, give glory to God. This is like saying, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what they're saying. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. You testify too. They are already made up their minds. Their burden is to make it known that Jesus is a sinner. They choose to ignore the facts. Facts that they should have already known. Facts that they had every reason to believe. Faith family, these people here at this time, they were not atheists. They believed that God existed. They were not deists. They believed that God was a personal God who revealed himself. They knew from the scriptures that God promised to Moses a prophet who was to come. They knew that God promised a king to David in 2 Samuel 7. They knew that God promised to send a priest one day who would cover the sins of the people from Isaiah 52 and 53. Through Ezekiel, they knew that God promised to send one who would shepherd his people personally. Through Daniel, they knew that the Son of Man, God incarnate, would become flesh. And through Isaiah, they would know that that person could be recognized when the blind from birth received their sight. Doing this miracle was the calling card that all that they looked forward to was actually here. That's what the scriptures taught. And they were the teachers of the scripture. Facts that they had every reason to believe. But they willfully ignored the truth about who Jesus was. It's not really an investigation anymore, is it? It's an interrogation. Look at 26 and 27. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've already told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? He's getting more and more bold, isn't he? Even as he stands alone, he's getting more and more bold. And you realize if you've been in these kind of conversations that there's times where people ask you the same question, the same question, the same question, the same question, over and over and over again, and they are not actually listening for an answer. They're just asking the same question over and over and over again to kind of just confirm in their minds that they just don't believe. Second tactic, right, is just cynicism. Cynicism is just the simple belief 
that I'm going to doubt and 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 say it's not good enough, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. We've already seen it in John 7 and John 8 that unbelief is not satisfied. It's how unbelief works. If you're here as a non-Christian, unbelief often does this. No matter how many evidences you are provided, you still say not good enough. And you change why you don't believe and it keeps shifting, it keeps moving. So in light of the overwhelming evidence, their unbelief is unexcusable. They go on to tactic number three, which is criticize. How do we ignore truth? Censorship, cynicism, last, just personal criticism. 28 and 29, they reviled him saying, you are his disciples, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. What difference does it make where he comes from? It's what is he saying true? Does truth change because you're hearing it from a man? Does truth change because you're hearing it from a white man? Don't confuse the label for the product. We don't know where he's from. What difference does that make? Is it truth or is it not truth? Friends, are your prejudices, your assumptions, the blindness of your unbelief getting in the way of seeing the truth that is right in front of your nose? What standards are you using to judge Jesus? Is it the standard of tolerance? The gospel according to tolerance would be that Jesus doesn't match up to my views of a tolerant religion, so therefore I'm going to do away with him. How about the gospel of inclusion? Is Christianity inclusive of enough people? Maybe it's the gospel of social justice. That's a standard by which you judge Jesus. Is Christianity advancing the goals of social justice that I've already committed that are the right way of doing things? Does Christianity align with your sexual ethics? Does Jesus condone my pursuit of my sexual ethics, how I want to behave, that I've already decided what my life is supposed to be about? And if he doesn't, we ignore him. We push this truth to the side. You see the point that I'm making. Whatever standard you use to judge Jesus, if it's not God's standard, you're going to reach a false verdict about him. You're going to want to ignore him because it doesn't line up with what you already hold to be true. And you will claim to see when, in fact, you don't. Look at verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say... We see your guilt remains. Guilt abides. Good Bible students is a key word in John. We're going to get to it in John 15. Abides. It's supposed to be a beautiful word. We're to abide in God and to abide in truth. But now they receive this indictment. Your guilt remains. It abides on you. Because arrogance rarely ever admits light to enter. Because arrogance is very unwilling to say that it ever was in the dark. That's the point. Faith family, do you pretend to see? But why do you pretend to see? Why do we want to pretend that we see it all so clearly? I think we all do this. We pretend to see and to have it all together. Isn't that just pride? The good news of the gospel is this. 
God is not like us. He is not fooled by your claim to see. He is not impressed by your claim to see and to have all of life together. But here is the really, really good news. He is not scandalized when you admit, I can't see. His delight is for you to admit that you can't see. So for the first time, you actually might see something, the glory of God through Jesus Christ to bring sight to the blind. The question is, does that include you? And sometimes the first step in being able to see is admitting that you can't see. Maybe for the first time this morning, you should ask this question, do I really see? This morning, you have every chance to have your eyes opened. The light of the world does not need darkness's permission to work. All you have to do is to admit that you can't see and ask God to have mercy to open your eyes. And it is his delight to bring sight to the blind as the light of the world. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We pray that we would identify more with this blind man who admits that he can't see, who stands up to those that are in opposition, that stands up to those that want to oppose darkness. He stands up even while you are absent for this whole story. He stands up. He perseveres in his faith, and he proclaims he's not silent. He's not afraid. Actually, his confidence just grows more and more as he is questioned. And we pray that your church, if it's been complacent, you'd forgive us. If we've been silent, that you'd have mercy on us, and that we would be a bold witness, and bold in your church, and bold in your body to know what they believe, why they believe it. Know that you are the light of the world who can open eyes as simple as saying, let there be light. We ask all this to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.